It's become the most volatile issue in American Christianity. But what does scripture actually say about homosexuality and gender identity? Join us today on Theology Unplugged as we begin our series on homosexuality in the church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. I am here with Tim and Sam and JJ once again. I'm Michael Patton. I'm going to be your host here. And we are going to continue discussing um, unplugged theology. Uh, that's what we do here. That's right. And what do we mean by theology unplugged? It's, uh, it's theology that's what? What is it, JJ? Uh, unscripted and probably helps simulate what it would be like to be asked a tough question in a coffee shop when you didn't have a chance to prep. Yeah, we're trying to, <laughs> we're trying to do things that are, that are real. That's I, right. I like that. That's right. Real? Yeah, I think it's good not to always have this scripted response. I think it's good to show, you know, this is how we struggle through these issues, you know. It's not always that you talk in sound bites. You know, you struggle through things, you come to terms with things, you wrestle with things, and that's what we're doing here. Well, we are in a coffee shop at uh, the Credo House, and so that's a good way to do it. Yep, I'm dr- drinking a Bootser right now. Bootser? Who's that's Bootser? Who I, uh, Martin Bootser was one of the greats of the Reformation that tried to uh, unite all of the Reformers and have them minister together. He was a very gracious man, wasn't he? Uh, you know, I didn't know him personally, but that's <laughs> what I hear. <laughs> so what does that say of me? You're having a Bootser and I'm eating, drinking a Diet Coke, so. Yeah, is, you uh, know, I, we have to talk later is what okay, it means. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to discuss here this um, b- uh, this broadcast about something that is uh, fairly controversial in the church today. I mean, is that a good way to put it? Fairly. Fairly. Uh, it is the single most volatile, controversial, pressing issue the church uh, has faced uh, yeah. probably in uh, the history of this country, and it, it probably will be until Jesus comes back. How's, that, how's that for overblowing? That is, that is big. Is that an over-the-top, uh, off-the-cuff, unplugged, exagger- but it's not an exaggeration, it's true? It, it, the only thing that I would say about that is um, if, it, if it is not the number one issue that our country has faced, I think it is the biggest issue it's faced since theological liberalism of the 1930s. What's so difficult about that is immediately certain Christians who don't feel confident in the authority of Scripture begin feeling self-conscious as though the church is picking on people who have been picked on historically, marginalized, um, abused, made fun of, and and now it seems like we're sort of piling it on by making this the touchstone issue. I think it's important for people to remember that it's become a touchstone issue because it's not really about this issue. It's about the functional authority of Scripture. What happens when popular opinion and culture is strongly opposed to the fixed word of God, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to talk about homosexuality in the church, homosexuality in Christianity, homosexuality in the transgender debate uh, will be our topic for this uh, broadcast and possibly further broadcast as we move on. And, and it is. It is a volatile issue. It is an important issue. It is an issue that um, is, is, Sam, you said the most volatile, but how how much is this becoming a part of the church's discussion? Something can be volatile and on the side. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is this the center issue? Is this the debate that people need to be discussing, are discussing? I think that it is. And I think uh, I was just, you know, we compare this to the abortion issue, uh, which was perhaps more so at the forefront of the church's uh, engagement with the broader culture in the last, what, 40 years or so than anything else. 
And it's not that the abortion issue has been marginalized or set aside. It's not that we don't talk about it anymore. But for some reason, this one seems to be uh, of such a nature that uh, there's never going to come a time when it goes away. And I think part of the reason for that is, and I know this is kind of a, a strange way of putting it, abortion, uh, for all of its evils, is, is what um, you do to somebody else. Um, this one is wrapped up in a person's sense of identity. This is not just what I do. For many people, this is who I am. And when you get something so deeply entrenched in, in a person's self-awareness and the way they uh, conceive of themselves and who they are, um, it's, it's not an issue that's just going to be tangential to the, to the life of the church. And, of course, all of, the, all of the legal ramifications for how the church is to respond to this and yes. deal with people who struggle with these sorts of issues are so massive mm-hmm. that I, I think we are in, I, th- I know we've seen a lot already within our society, I think we are in for a massive, um, I don't know what, uh, what do we want to call it, a moral conflagration um, a collision of monumental proportions. Again, not trying to overblow the significance of it, but um, I, I, I'm saying that because I just I want Christians to be aware. I think a lot of Christians are their t- their tendency is just well, we just say the Bible's against it and then and call it sin and go on. That doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't work when you've got such a substantial number of your people in your church who are really wrestling with this. Why is, it, why is it a bigger issue now? Let me sound a culturally sensitive note to maybe answer your question. Too many Christians are unaware of the massive number of presuppositions that have led people to being tipped over on this issue. Charles Taylor, one of the most influential philosophers in the world today, wrote a tiny little book called The Ethics of Authenticity. It's fantastic. Christians can rail against what seems to be the sort of bridges of Madison County theology that people have. Follow your heart, do what feels good, put yourself first. What they don't understand is that the culture has been teaching people that if you don't do that, you're inauthentic. You have to do those things Mm -hmm. to be the true you. So all of that is now converging, as Sam said, and it's become very personal. One Anglican wrote in the Anglican Theological Review, the norms for sexual activity and relationship turn out to be the same whether for heterosexual or for same-sex. And the norms include do no unjust harm, free consent, mutuality, equality, commitment, fruitfulness, and social justice. And so Margaret Farley says, they're checking all those boxes. How can you say it's wrong? So our culture now has been prepared to say, how can you call something sin that seems to be so moral and virtuous by the culture's definition of what being moral and virtuous is? Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I think uh, one way that I like to put it is through Wesley's quadrilateral with reason, experience, tradition, and, and scripture being authorities. And I think I think for maybe even a couple hundred years now, the church in America especially has been very anti-intellectual. And because we've been so anti-intellectual, we have almost allowed a cultural Christianity where reason and experience are actually directing us more than scripture is. And because reason and experience are directing us more than scripture, what has happened in maybe 20 years or so, the last 20 years, is reason and experience are now switching to be pro-homosexual. So when you talk to teenagers today, their reason and their experience is 100% pro-homosexuality. And so now uh, we have gotten used to living with scripture being there, but not being in the driver's seat. And so now that reason and experience have changed, now the entire church is changing rather swiftly to be pro-homosexual. And trying to have a civil discussion in the public square is becoming almost impossible. 
you know, someone like Justin Lee in his book Torn said, the church's anti-homosexual reputation isn't just a reputation for opposing gay sex or gay marriage. It's a reputation for hostility to gay people. So, yeah. the, so we can't talk about the debate anymore. It gets collapsed into we're unloving if we yeah. disagree with them and if we're opposed from a theological conviction to a moral choice someone is making. It's automatically unloving. That's right. And now, so now the pro-homosexual Christians are seeing themselves as reformers. They're seeing themselves as being the next step from Martin Luther, Mm. is that now they are seeking to reform the church, and we are now the institutional church that needs to be reformed. And we do find that a lot. I find that a lot is people comparing this, saying you want to be on the right side of this because in 20 and 50 and 100 years, it will be a lot like uh, slavery was in America to where you are embarrassed to have argued uh, for one side, like, you know, the the slavery movement. That's right. And what what I'm confused about is, uh, I guess maybe you guys touched on it a little bit. Maybe we don't need to touch on it anymore. But why now? Why so much? uh, Why has it become such a big issue? Why is it the biggest issue in the church? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I guess you could come at that from a number of different angles. One is uh, just the sexualizing of our culture. Um, you know, you, the, you compare today with the 1950s. I know you guys have a hard time because you weren't here in the 1950s. I was. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it, it, things were, um, it, you go through the 60s and the, uh, just the cultural sexual revolution and, of course, the, um, the, the birth control pill, um, the, uh, the abortion issue, Roe v. Wade. Um, the massive explosion of technology uh, in terms of the availability of, of uh, sexually explicit materials. And I'm not just talking about uh, homosexual. I'm just talking about the massive intrusion into our lives in which people at a much younger age now are being exposed to things that when I was a kid, you, you might find in a magazine in a trash can in, the back, in somebody threw away in the alley, but that's the closest you would ever come mm-hmm. um, to finding anything remotely approaching pornography. So the whole culture has undergone a massive shift and, and a massive overexposure to these issues. Um, and again, I think it's the, it, and then there's just the, the kind of the sociological, philosophical, psychological, whatever you want to say, dimension of where basically there are only two truths to which each individual is obligated. Be true to yourself and don't hurt others. Nothing else matters. There is no higher moral standard. There is no objective authority. As long as you're true to yourself and you don't hurt other people, anything goes. And that's the rampant dominant theme. And when that is the case, when there is a no sense of a, of a transcendent moral authority that governs our lives and our choices, then it's to be expected that these sorts of things are going to emerge the way they have. Well, and you also find the general tendency towards moral relativism uh, across the board where people, and I'm trying to put this in a positive way from the standpoint of people who may be engaged in this issue and accept the issue in a different way than we might, it's that many people are confused about what is right and what is wrong. And many people are trying to find some type of way to sustain a higher morality than the, than the small morality we held to before, maybe. They're, they're thinking there's a greater moral uh, endeavor that we should be after, and this moral endeavor should be kind of this acceptance of one another and this uh, 
instead of trying to find individual issues where people go wrong, morally speaking, trying to find true-to-yourself type stuff, because we don't know what's right and what's wrong. There's so many different opinions out there, and there's so many different good arguments for the varying opinions that are out there. Why don't we just quit arguing about the individual subjects and issues and try to find some higher moral ground, which is this true-to-yourself type thing. Well, and let's not forget, even looking inward, before we rail on the culture, it's, it's as we've been saying, it's let's look inward, and the church is sounding more and more like the culture. Mm-hmm. When we try to coach somebody for faithfulness and celibacy, <laughs> patient waiting, um, either for heaven or for marriage, you hear the same rhetoric. They feel like less of a person because the culture has sold them this bill of goods that unless you're using your sexuality physically, you're less of a person. You mm-hmm. have to be actively sexual to be whole, to be complete. And so we've lost the theology of celibacy even within the church. And then you take a same-sex struggler who's maybe staring down a lifetime the side of heaven without sexual activity unless God renews their sexuality the side of heaven. And they suddenly find they have no theology of celibacy. They, mm-hmm. they feel like less than a person, as do our non-same-sex strugglers who are celibate in the church and longing to engage sexually. You know, we were raised with quotes like, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, and go and do that because what the world needs is people who've come alive. Mm. And that's fine to a point until it becomes its own theology. Oh, mm. I, need, I feel like I'm dying here. Yeah. And we realize we don't have a theology of self-crucifixion, self-denial. We have a theology of self-fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree with that. I, I just think, generally speaking, we've just crossed a tipping point. You know, I, I think that we've had, you know, like the Scottish lawmaker that said, you know, you write the laws of the country, let me write the songs of the country. You know, and I think just the songs of our country, the media of our country, and, and it's kind of that age-old, like, does art imitate culture or vice versa, you know, but, but there's just been a general tipping point where maybe people who previously were in the church and were afraid to speak out are now men like uh, Matthew Vines and many other people are now writing bestseller books saying I'm a Christian and I'm gay and I think Jesus is fine with that. Well, let's let's go so, there for just a moment. Yeah. I'm a Christian and I'm gay. Yes. Um, I think another transition in this discussion is that we, we have so much within the church now, yeah. so many people within the church that are arguing for both sides. And it used to be that maybe it was the church against culture, maybe evangelicalism against culture. But now you find even conservative Christianity beginning to t- pick this up and and wrestle with it in a different way to where it's not so black and white to everyone. And, and we're not so sure as we used to be about the morality of homosexuality, and maybe we're wrong on this. And even for the conservative Christians, I find conservative Christians who are saying, I'm just not going to stand on this issue one way or the other. Yeah. And uh, I'm we've, backing off we've on We've moved from Brian McLaren saying, I'll get back to you in seven years when asked about it, to people like Ken Wilson and Matthew Vines who are saying, good news, you can have your cake and eat it too. We're back you can, to you and everything is okay. You can, you can hold to the authority of Scripture. You That's can right. stay within evangelicalism and you can embrace monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships. That's right. It, it, yeah, you mentioned those uh, individuals. There are many, uh, and we've mentioned a few names here, who want to say we hold a high view of Scripture. We believe in its inspiration, its authority. Some of them would even say we believe it's inerrant. Mm-hmm. We believe that it's an ultimate moral standard for us. And what they then attempt to do is to reinterpret the text and try to read them in a different manner, such as Matthew Vines does. Then you have 
sort of, which, by the way, I must say, I have very little respect for that approach because it is it's such a disingenuous interpretive approach to the Word of God, which we'll get into in many cases. I have far more respect for a New Testament scholar like Luke Timothy Johnson. Luke Timothy Johnson is a very prominent New Testament, he's written numerous commentaries who basically said, look, we have to be honest. The Word of God is very clear. It does not approve of any homosexual uh, practice. It is very uh, explicit in its uh, denunciation of it. The fact of the matter is, therefore, um, I just simply reject the Word of God. Um, I, I have a higher authority, and basically it is the sense of psychological well-being, uh, self-fulfillment, uh, the, uh, the, the, the trends within my culture, what it's going to be necessary in order to facilitate uh, life and health and growth and all the other kinds of arguments you want to use. But at least I, I respect the fact that he says, no, I, I, can't, I can't reread the Word of God. I can't rewrite it. It is what it is. It denounces homosexual practice as sin. But I'm just simply going to reject that as the Word of God. I'm simply going to embrace a higher authority, namely the cultural norms, the sense of individuality and self-fulfillment that we see in our society. Well, and, and I think the self-fulfillment is a huge part. Like Matthew Vines, I think, uses that as a strong argument, too. I mean, he basically says, how can you have kids that, that are in your children's ministry, they're hearing about Jesus, then they're loving Jesus, then they're in your youth group, and they're loving Jesus, then they start having feelings of homosexuality. Your church has taught that that's wrong, and so they commit suicide. You know, and he gives examples. He names names of kids that have committed suicide in the youth group because they find out they're gay. And he basically says the Bible cannot, you know, Christianity cannot be against this because look at the monsters you guys have become. And, and I agree. It, it's, it's a similar type argument that, uh, that why in the world would God ever call someone to be against this? The Bible must be discarded for the sake of peace in a community and having these kids be alive. Well, and let's not, we're getting into some deep issues here. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget the fact that uh, people uh, professing Christians have committed suicide for a multiplicity of yeah, reasons other right. than their struggle with homosexuality. They have committed suicide because they're depressed. Uh, they've committed suicide because no, they can't. Because their girlfriend broke up with that's them. That's right. Or they can't break free of an alcohol addiction. And there are a, a massive number of other reasons why that's the case. And if we say, well, because you're inclined to commit suicide, because you're made to feel like you're a sinner, uh, given your particular practice, um, then we're not going to have anything that we could ever speak to from a moral high, high ground from the Word of God. So, yeah, But it kind of gets to the point of what you're talking about with Timothy Johnson, though, is this idea of, um, you know, that we need to lean towards what is best for all people uh, with this presupposition that that allowing people to do those things is the best and recognizing that the Bible must take a second seat. Yeah, and let's make note, let's be very clear. We want our list, don't want our listeners to be misled. Yeah. We think it is tragic that yes. somebody within the church or even in society who's never even crossed the, the threshold of a church would take their own life because they feel... Uh, ostracized and uh, condemned, our, our hearts break for them. We want to minister to them. We want to hold forth the promise of life to them. So we're not just, you know, s dismissing them casually and saying, oh, come on, get over it. We realize the profound struggles that they have, the fear that dominates their life. Of, oh, somebody's going to find out that I struggle with same-sex attraction or mm -hmm. whatever it is. I'm going to. You talk about becoming an object of bullying. Yeah. Uh, so the church needs to develop a, um, an approach, an attitude of compassion, sensitivity, and love 
for these individuals, but at the same time, acknowledging without qualification that the most loving thing that you can do for another human being is to awaken them to the teachings of God's Word and the kind of life that is going to lead to eternal bliss rather than eternal condemnation. And, you know, we'll talk about the compassion thing uh, very much soon, I, I imagine. But let's, I want to talk about the, the kind of defining of the terms here because we're going to have to get into the, the arguments on each side. And I think when we talk about um, the arguments on each side, we're, we're talking once again, what I said earlier, within conservative Christianity. And what I mean by that at least is this, that... Uh, don't we want to discuss where, Tim, where people are, they, they're taking the Bible and they're saying, I believe the Bible, but I now believe that the Bible teaches that uh, same-sex attraction is okay against the more traditional view that it's not okay, whereas beforehand it wasn't so much this. This is something that's more within conservative Christianity than before. And there's arguments on each side, right? Yeah. Th- these are people who want to hold to the Bible. They want to be Christian. They want to follow Jesus. And they want to say that at the same time, it is okay to be homosexual and follow Jesus. Well, and, and I would even, uh, I think they would not like that you're using the word want. I think they would say they are. Yeah. So they are following Jesus. They are following the Bible. And they believe that homosexuality in a monogamous relationship that is honoring to both of those, those men or both of those women is honoring to God. It, here's, a, here's another thing that I'm just going to throw out there that we'll maybe take up in another broadcast. We're facing what I, one particular author I read recently called sexual atheism. And I thought it was a profound insight. And his point was that Christians who struggle with this and other areas are more than willing to say, yes, the Word of God governs my life ethically when it comes to interpersonal relationships. It tells me I shouldn't steal, I won't steal. It says I shouldn't lie, I won't lie. It says I shouldn't take another life, I won't take another life. In other words, every area of my human existence is covered and governed by the authority of God's Word except my sexual behavior. That is outside the parameters of anybody to dictate than my own passions, my own desires, and my own sense of who I am. So when it comes to sex, they act as, in essence, as if they are atheists. There is no God. There is no transcendent law or individual who can tell me what is right and what is wrong. You can do that in every other arena of life. You know, tell me I have to obey the, the laws of the land. I have to pay my taxes. Okay, yes, I, I, I will abide by that. Do not tell me how to govern my sexual behavior. So this, it, it's like I'm going to be a robust Bible-believing Christian in every other ethical dimension. When it comes to sexual behavior, I'm an atheist. And that's pervasive throughout Christianity with Internet pornography. I mean, this is not a, as it relates to homosexuals. This is as it relates to a majority of Christians in the church, I think, is to say, my, I, I mean, I think systemically sexuality is broken in our culture mm-hmm. uh, across the board. And yes, how we relate to homosexual might be different than how we relate to a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old that's hooked on internet pornography, uh, but it is broken nonetheless in all those categories. Well, we're, we've bankrupted so many of our youth because we haven't given them a hedonistic view of self-control, that it mm-hmm. is actually one of the fruits of the Spirit and that saying no can actually lead to fulfillment. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to have to take this up further in another broadcast, but I do want to ask the question in the next broadcast at some point is, 
has the church dealt with this well historically? Is, mm. is there, are we paying for something in some ways? But we'll have to pick that up next time. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.